Welcome to Bestek. Today, Marta and I are discussing CGU judgments in Sanrese in Klaipedos and privilege in academia. Welcome to Bestek, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andov discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food, and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bestek. Let's dish up public procurement law. Hello. Hello, hello. Hello. Such a pleasure to record again. Um, and for a change, let's not laugh and let's not uh, do silly jokes, or at least let's maybe I'm just talking. <laughs> I'm really struggling to not laugh right now. <laughs> um, but uh, we're, we're talking about two cases today from the Courts of Justice, uh, both from 2021. Um, and they kind of like look at criteria, mostly to selection, but we get a bit of a discussion about technical specifications and then also contract performance conditions come in. So there's a, I think the general theme is selection, but also criteria and, and, the, and the discussion that happened in these two um, uh, cases. And then for dessert, we'll be looking at, uh, or at least we're trying to spark a bit of debate about privilege in, uh, in academia, what could be angles that you could discuss with your colleagues um, at the coffee uh, coffee machine. Does that sound all right? Yeah, I think that that sounds about right. All right, fantastic. Um, so maybe to give to get everyone on the same page, if you're listening from the car and you don't have your text or your books with you or you're not looking at Directive 2014, 24, I mean, we read that on a Sunday night, right? Of course, always. If you cannot fall asleep, that's what you do. Oh, okay. Now, so I tried to read it to my wife and I just say like, oh, let's go to Article 70 or mm. 58. You're very lucky that you're still married then. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. Uh, we'll go from there. Uh, so we thought it would be good. Let's just start briefly at the directive and selection criteria, because that's kind of the, the, the let motive or the red thread that runs through these two cases. So it'd be useful to just start there. Yeah, and I think just maybe one sentence before that is just also that there is a relationship between our today um, episode that we're recording to the episode that we did um, in the past on contract performance conditions and sort of link um, to to today. So if you're interested in that, we also have uh, something on that, on what Article 70 is. And up there we were discussing, you know, contract performance and technical specification in context of the so-called Dutch coffee case. Um, but yeah, today we're we, we starting broadly from this Article 58 that ultimately establishes the selection criteria. And within um, selection criteria, we can look at Suitability to pursue professional activity, economic and financial standing, and technical and professional ability. Now, what is this and how is that related to these cases is that um, both of those cases that we want to touch upon today, they really go into nitty-gritty details of selection criteria. One of the cases looks at the differentiation, again, between what's a um, technical specification selection criteria and contract performance conditions. Can something be unanimously kind of applied as a criteria in all of those three or even award criteria? Or if you use it once, you only can use it once and you need to pick and choose. And the yeah. other case also looks really on um, 
a sort of differentiation between those three categories that I just mentioned within the selection criteria. So when something is economic financial standing, when something is a technical professional ability, and when it is suitability to pursue um, professional activity, and sort of detailing across those. So this is where we are really with uh, within a broader perspective on this. All right, and then so we we stick to we stay in Lithuania, I think, for both cases. Yes, I so believe it's so. Very, um, so it seems I th- always find it interesting also to see what discussions happen on the national level, what gets referred to the courts, and um, whereas say Dutch courts, we have uh, I think about six, seven cases that were ever referred to the uh, Court of Justice when it came to public procurement. Most recently, the Connection case, and of course Marx Havela, like you mentioned, but. Uh, it seems that some member states refer more than more often than than others, um, and also I find that it seems that this Lithuanian context really um, is very focused on some of these issues that we're discussing today. So I find that it's always a nice insight into, particularly if you don't speak the language, into what's happening on the ground uh, before the courts in, yeah, uh, is, in other jurisdictions. What is really interesting and what is important, and I think the the the, the broader context, of course, here is this also applicable. As you know, we have majority of cases that are referred to Court of Justice that are the Italian cases, but up there, at least what has been communicated to me is also somehow related to the responsibility and almost the liability of the judges that actually they they really have to kind of check those things. And I think also some of these new countries that I think... Um, by new, I mean that really sort of invested in the development of the procurement legal systems. They may have more questions. It's also interesting sectoral ones. I think a lot of cases, for example, um, from uh, from Poland and from uh, Lithuania touch upon things related or to telecommunication or to waste collection. So also yep. particular sectors are, are quite um, interesting. And we actually are looking um, here also at, uh, at, at, at waste collection. Uh, with, I feel like uh, 95% of the cases that we look at in procurement are waste collection, yes, right? Yes, it's very, it's very interesting, right? It's almost it asks for specific work uh, just on uh, waste exactly. collection. Exactly. At the time, I always had this, uh, when I didn't want to work on my PhD a lot of years back, I always imagined what the cover of my PhD would be. And at a point when I was going through all these these in-house public-public cooperation cases, I thought, I'm going to picture myself and then take a photo on top of these, this heap of rubbish. <laughs> and I'll sit there and I've conquered the rubbish that was uh, whatever. But anyways, that never happened. It became this like knotted thing that, you know, anyways, Anywho. side story. So should we give um, it a jump to the first of them? Yes, let's go for that. So this is a this is the Sanrese case, probably incorrectly pronounced. Correct us if uh, if you think that was too too bad to, for actually recording it, but we're doing our best. But because <laughs> of that, I'll also add the date and just maybe the case number so people can look it up. It's the eighth of July, twenty twenty one. It was a case that was asked by the Lithuanian Supreme Court. And it was case number two hundred ninety five slash twenty. And it was a case that was between uh, Sanresa, who who got excluded from a, from a tender, uh, versus uh, and, and I'll use the English uh, translation just to make life a little bit uh, easier for myself. Uh, the Environmental Protection Department under the Ministry of Environment, All right? And that was where this debate happened. And basically, it started with a, an, uh, a call for tenders related to hazardous waste management services. And the way I picture this, and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm summarizing very quickly now, is that there were a couple of containers that was, so there was a concrete job at hand. 
containers that had hazardous substances in them. It wasn't specified how much was actually in them. Containers that were also likely to leak already, right? So there was an inherent risk, which meant that there was uh, that that the procedural time was also lessened. It was a somewhat of a, an emergency, speedy yeah, it was procedure, expedited procedure. Yeah, due exactly. to ultimately the prevention of the environmental disaster that was on yeah. the way. Mm-hmm. And then um, four tenderers submitted, including uh, uh, the appellant in this case, who had two subcontractors. And the the issue, or at least what led to the proceedings, was that some of these subcontractors didn't have a specific authorization to ship hazardous waste. And um, then there was a bit of a procedural quaffle. The, the tender got terminated came back up again. Uh, I don't, don't think that's relevant to discuss very broadly, but ultimately uh, the, the, the tenderers were given 40 days to get the proof that they actually had this, uh, this certificate, right? Um, and then Sanreza got excluded because it didn't have, or the subcontractors didn't have it and, and claimed that it still fulfilled the technical criteria so that it was an illegitimate exclusion. And then, uh, then the fun stuff starts. Is basically then the court uh, starts discussing. Okay, what does this mean? Was this legitimate or not? Right? Yeah, yeah, very much. I think that if I can just add to what you pointed out, it's a little bit on that specific requirement um, because this is really where uh, where the the point of contention really arose. So, in the tender notice, uh, there was so called a capacity requirement. And that capacity requirement um, pointed out that um, the tenders uh, were to be required to meet uh, the deadline of the submission, uh, this capacity requirement. Uh, but only the first ranked tender, so ultimately the one that was to be uh, the winner, were to prove uh, or to provide the evidence of that capacity. And that capacity was exactly this this, this requirement of authorization uh, here. And uh, the question was really, uh, you know, to what extent and what that requirement is, is that a selection criteria or is that a per- performance condition? Um, and this really where the, where the question uh, arose, because what happened here was that... Um, uh, the classification of the case uh, of the clause, excuse me, uh, really came at the forefront. The clause that was requiring the consent to be issued uh, to the economic uh, operator, uh, which was necessary to ship the waste from one member state to um, to another uh, country. Yeah, and that was a, that was a European. Uh, it's a European regulation, right? Yes. Where that uh, regu- so it's regulation. 1013/2006 right exactly. so to so have the, this certificate so the question really here was whether this is a condition relating to this supplier capacity that has been referred as a requirement of capacity in the tender notice or this is a condition relating to performance of the contract once the contract has been concluded and what happened here was that the court ultimately in in, in, in its um, the briefing and its judgment ultimately pointed out was that Article 58, so the selection criteria, relates to the suitability of an economic operator. Is that it does not relate to economic or fi- financial standing? This this clause where we where we are at. Yeah. Um, but it does relate to this pursuit of professional activity relevant to the public contract. 
Um, and here the question was whether this obligation uh, was one of uh, of such a of such a requirement, whether this was potentially a technical or professional ability, um, which here it was decided by the court that this does not relate um, uh, to evaluation of the of the of the experience here and having this capacity. The court was here also doubtful whether this would be this um, this uh, requirement of suitability to pursue professional activity. And ultimately here the, the point is being given that the consent is a contract performance condition laying down the special conditions addressing the environment consideration which are to apply to uh, operators um, that uh, that will be fulfilling that contract and yes sorry no so so what i liked also to recap what i liked what the court did in this case because mm. sometimes i mean people criticize the court's reasoning but it's it's quite clear in the sense that it the court really peels down all the different options under 58 right when yeah. it comes to selection criteria and it basically looks at it and goes, no, no, no. And then it comes, ends up with Article 70, mm. uh, where it concludes that it that it's likely, I mean, that there's, of course, a reference again to, hey, they, should the national court decide that yeah. under these conditions, et cetera. But um, I, I thought that was quite useful. I mean, in a way, as an academic, you also look at cases as like, it would be good if there's if the reasoning is clear, um, not only because that helps us out in class or when we need to <clears throat> explain certain cases in a podcast, but uh, I thought that was quite nice in this case. Exactly. So, um, so here ultimately the, the the conclusion is is being given to the fact that um, any conditions of performance here should be, uh, of course, uh, included in the call for tender or in the procurement documents yep. and the failure of doing that. So the gen of doing that is, is is problematic. So the general reference, you know, to the principles um, here. Um, and ultimately, court says that the tender's bid may not be rejected solely on the ground that at the time of submitting the tender, uh, they did not produce a proof of meeting those conditions of performing the contract performance conditions. And this is what we will come back after we also look at the Klaipodos, because both of those cases, in a way, really reconfirmed this notion and just in one sentence, spoiler alert, what we'll be talking about, but that you actually cannot uh, verify proofs for contract and evaluate contract performance conditions in the process of awarding contract, which I think it's in a way quite different to what we had in Regio Post or even Bentius and all these cases that somehow the window has been open stating that, well, you need to agree to certain things that are in the tender documentation on that basis, the contracting authority can hold you responsible to that. So the sort of evaluation kind of was allowed to a certain extent when right now, both of the cases quite quite unanimously say, no, this is a certain level of risk that you need to take upon yourself as a contracting authority and you need to review yep. it after the contract. After, is after the award yeah. of contract. is being, Yeah. And also I think it's, it's, I think probably something related to, you know, it's at least you're opening the scope for competition a bit more, right? You're allowing perhaps lessening of administrative burdens by not asking everyone to comply prior to, to it. Um, and also what I think is interesting is in, in a way, and I don't know if this is the catch in this case, mm -hmm. is that in order to be able to get this certificate, there was this, so, so, so the, the, the economic operators or the tenderers that, that subscribed to the tender, they, they were allowed to inspect, right? An on-site visit, which yes. is very not uncommon. 
Um, but still, it was unclear what the amount or type of waste was. Yeah, that was also um, quite problematic, there. right? That it was not specific you, enough. Mm? Exactly. And, but then you couldn't even request, if you don't know what the hazardous waste is that you're transporting, or at least this is what the, the judgment states is, then it would be impossible to get the certificate. Yeah, I think right? that the court sort of, to paraphrase, said at some point something, well, this would be fiction on the basis of which, or at least there would be a level of fiction on the basis of which you would obtain that certification because you would still need to then, when you investigate and when you really know all the details, you would need to kind of almost resubmit it to not be, uh, to, to be really legally compliant, right, with that. Yeah. So I think that, that um, I hope that some of our listeners that work with all of this or, or have been listening to our previous episodes, this should, as I mentioned, feel here at least um, sound, sorry, at least a little bit connected to Dutch coffee, right? Because why the substance quite different, but it is really well. In Dutch coffee, we had something that was described as a technical specification and the court ultimately said, well, this this is not technical specification, it's a contract performance condition. And up here, the, there is a similar element. What is quite nice with this case that court goes to each one of the selection criteria that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode and assess it and says, yeah, this one not because this and that, this one not because this and that. And then it concludes really with this reference to contract performance condition. The argument also being used how you to protect yourself a little bit of taking upon too large of a risk with this non-assessment of the contract performance condition is that, and I don't remember right now from top of my head in whether the court said that in San Resa or in the other one, but I think it's applicable in both ways, mm-hmm. is that you can set a fairly you know high or as high as you think is relevant selection criteria and things like experience on previous project that hopefully should get you a type of economic operator that really knows what they're doing. So yeah. this contract performance conditions really will be fulfilled. Yeah. So that was mostly Klaipedos, just uh, yeah. also for reference yeah. uh, when it came to the annual turnover, but we'll get to yeah, that yeah. Uh, afterwards. Yeah. But it's relevant in, in any in, of these in, cases, yes. clearly. Yeah. Should we go to the other one? So our listeners know Great. kind of where we are. So this is the first take, right? Or sort of the first issue. Um, and up here, we can give a very short uh, shout out to S. Gusal, who wrote actually yes. the the case sort of little commentary that is open access. And we're going to link it somewhere in, in the transcript and in information sure. of of of. Uh, of the, on the podcast uh, on our website, and she wrote a really interesting, a short case co- uh, commentary that we that we would say just you know jump in and have a read if you're interested. Or it's yeah, in uh, in uh, 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 once someone once told me how to pronounce the acronym of this journal. It's the European Procurement and Public Private Partnership Law, Law Review E Triple P L R. Then all of a there sudden it made sense and sounds kind of um, cool. E Triple P E Triple P L R. Um, so this is the Klaipedos case. We're all still in 2021, 7 September, case numbers 927-19. Um, again, waste, like we already um, uh, provided in the cliffhanger, it's a regional wage management center of the region of Klaipeda versus Euroservice. And um, there was an award of contract for waste collection and transport uh, to a group of economic operators, which was referred to as the consortium. And um, it was an, an open international procurement procedure, as the um, the case record notes. And there were a couple of um, criteria that were added, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, that there was there needed to be compliance with the Euro Five standard when it came to to the vehicles, um, 
Uh, you needed to have continuous GPS running so that the municipality could track it. Um, and, and, and basically the question that popped up is, um, uh, Euroservice said that the consortium that won is that they didn't meet the requirements. This, uh, uh, so basically it was the competitor again, complaining, of course, uh, stating that their, uh, well, I would say to say it a bit negatively, their adversary who took the contract didn't have the right, um, goods to be able to fulfill the contract. And then, um, a number of, I think six, well, don't get me wrong, but like quite a lot of uh, preliminary questions were asked, not all related to the topic that we're discussing uh, today, also a bit about confidentiality, etc. Yeah, so um, I think that... Let's start with them. I think that we can categorize this sort of three groups of questions, and we're going within this episode address just two. So one is the differentiation between two different type of selection criteria. This is where we'll jump in in a second. Yep. The second one was whether the Euro 5 standard relating to pollution emissions can be applied in technical specification, selection criteria, and contract performance conditions simultaneously. So what I mentioned earlier, can we have one thing that's sort of applied on a multiple stages? Um, and then this several of the question, and, and this is just a point, point here that if you might have interest in this, it, it, it's a good case to have a look. Various questions relating to things like access to information, protection of confidentiality information, and some related to that exclusion grounds. And those we won't touch upon because that no. sort of would not really fit with the with the purpose of... Interesting, but for another episode. Exactly, right? when we would dive into that. But if you might have interest in that, so now you know what is in the case, in case that you didn't have a chance to look it's through it also yet. just on a... Sorry, it's also on a side note. Like, it's always I find that it's so weird and also annoyingly frustrating how so many of the cases of the Court of Justice always have a lot of different things in them. Yeah. So you might label them as... One this thing. is a concessions <laughs> case. This is about pecuniary interest. This is because to make sense in your head. And then someone says, yeah, but the court said that. And then you're like, no, 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 that's not in that case. That's, I labeled that. And, it's a, and then you realize yes, it when is. you go back to it, oh yeah, the court also says something relevant about it there. So yeah. anyways, it's very difficult. The court, does it, the court strikes again. Yeah, it's very difficult <laughs> to kind of create for your own usage, like a catalog of cases because they do go through so many different aspects. Yeah, yeah. All right, okay. back to the case. Let's dive into it. And I'm going to... Um, um, and and uh, this is a sort of free uh, free field for Willem right now to laugh at me because whenever he reads some quotes from court, I'm sort of always laughing and I'm really accepting snoozing, of that snoozing sound. But I think no, that this is. <laughs> I think I'm I'm just the kind of person out of the okay, two. Okay, fair yeah. enough. Let's go with that. But I think that I need to kind of uh, support myself a little bit with Paris because this becomes a little bit like really detailed and complicated. And, and this is where we are right now, this differentiation between two different types of selection criteria. So um, the, as I mentioned, the main case contribution really is um, in, in this area. And um, namely, whether the tender's economic and financial standing um, or the tender's technical and professional ability sort of fulfills a particular particular requirement here, which one we really should apply. Yeah. And what the court here says, and this is where I start a little bit of, of, the, of the quoting, is if contracting authority has imposed only, only a requirement of a certain minimum annual turnover without requiring that that minimum uh, turnover has been achieved in the area, so here important, only without and in the area, 
covered by the contract, nothing precludes the economic operator from relying on the income received by a temporary group of undertakings. So pointing out to what Villa mentioned earlier on consortia, as they were uh, were bidding as a consortia, to which it belonged, even if did even if that specific economic operator did not actually contribute in the context of specific public contract to the performance of the activity that is, so to speak, at hand. So in other words, here the court said, if it's only requirement of minimum turnover without really specifying in which area, you have a little bit more space of relying of your consortia and what within consortia qualification you have it. However, in situation where contracting authority has required the same minimum turnover, but and this is where the change of circumstances apply, but to be achieved in specific area covered by the contract, that requirement ultimately has a twofold purpose in, in court's yep. opinion. It is, initi- it is intended to establish the economic and financial standing of the economic operator and helps to demonstrate the technical and professional abilities. So in this situation, the operator's... Um, uh, the operator's financial standing is uh, like its technical and professional abilities specific and exclusive to the operator or the legal entity. So it's sort of narrower. It's focusing not on the consoya, but specific member of the consoya. Yeah. So it's basically a call or a further emphasis on just be precise when you pose your criteria. It's like a suci di frutta type of clear and precise. It needs to be beforehand you need to notify everyone of how you're going to Mm. judge it how you're going to look at it how they can prove it and if you leave discretion that's your problem then they can use that and i think that it also reminds me a little bit this partner apelski uh, case you know Mm -hmm. when there was like well you cannot create a sort of legal fiction you actually need to do something specific and again this sort of precision really comes comes through so court very clearly here uh, or in a quite detailed manner sort of dissects one and another and says under which circumstances which is to be applied so this differentiation between how you apply both of the selection criteria comes forward and that's the main contribution of the case um, the second one, the aspect of this case that is a little bit kind of uh, also close to, to, to the, those various sort of interests of ours in sustainable public procurement is relating to this aspect of simultaneous application of particular element at the various stages of the procurement. And the reason why it's slightly delayed, uh, related is because we're actually looking at this Euro 5 standard. So we're looking at standardization in EU, but also this specific standard relates to uh, emission of pollutions, right? Yep. So the question here was whether this can be tax back selection criteria uh, and under selection uh, uh, criteria here, the consideration was of the technical and professional ability or contract performance condition. And the question maybe was um, whether um, all of them can be applied simultaneously. And the court actually said, yes, they can. Yes, you can. In this specific context, this uh, standardization can be applied simultaneously across all of them. Yeah, and I think, in, interestingly, that also underlines, like, I suppose maybe starting from a different angle, what we often get as as procurement lawyers is we're not always a welcome guest at the party, right? Mm. We 
have to explain ourselves and obviously we try to think along, but sometimes something is just not possible. I think what's interesting here is that it really underlines is that the choices you make as a contracting authority are vital to what you're going to get. And from a legal perspective, in many ways, you can press different buttons or switches in a procurement procedure to make sure that you get a certain outcome. And the court basically tells you here, look, this is the substance, but you can apply it in different spots with different results, right? If you use it, if just irrespective of this example, if you use award criteria, the advantage there is that you might get more out of the market, right? There's a competitive feature to it because they, they run next to each other. If you go for technical specifications, it's really like a standard, right? That's really what you want from all that, that, that bid. And basically you're setting a, you're setting a certain minimum. And so in a way, I find it interesting and I'm happy with this because I used it a while back already just to say, look, it's really the first step is really depicting how you're going to set up and structure a proper procurement procedure to get out of the market what you want. And you need to make the call on where you want to apply them. And luckily, the court is, is aiding you here and saying, look, this certificate or sorry, I'm going back to the, yeah. the uh, to the other case. This is not a certificate. The, this standard, this Euro 5 standard, it's useful in other spots as well, right? You can apply it in different spots of, and when I say spots, of parts of a procedure. Yeah, and I think that the court also obviously here clarifies that it's this is not, you, you still need to be quite careful how you read that case because this works here for this specific standard that touches upon yeah, emissions, right? If we're looking back on... And, and, and again, sort of the reference to Dutch coffee, that was not a standard, but it was a label. Um, so there was that that was the difference, but also the specificity, what the label was about, which in that case was about fair trade. When up here we're talking about emissions, there was a differentiation yeah. really here. So I think the court makes the detailed assessment, what is certified or label at hand and whether that fulfills the requirements of what technical specification is, as we know. Whatever that would be, if that would be also standard or things like that on fair trade, you couldn't put it in technical specification, right? Because that's not something that is that is allowed. Um, so, so no, fully, I fully agree. Yeah. It's, it's a, of course, it is a case by case assessment, yeah. but uh, and, and you're totally right. And it always needs to fulfill the tasks of the different art provisions. Yeah. But I do think it's interesting that you can kind of, you know, you can implement one aspect in different areas. Um, For sure. And so there yeah. is a certain, I think, reassured level of discretion, which we don't that often see really in the court of justice, I guess, uh, this uh, rulings that the court actually sort of says, well, you're the buyer, you know where it fits the best, right? So you have a yeah. choice to to pick and choose that. And I don't remember that case. And I was trying to kind of, uh, refer to it on a couple of occasions. Willem, maybe you remember. So this case that also um, was a big sort of issue years back on how you use experience, particularly in service contracts, whether that's if you applied it in a selection criteria that you cannot really apply it mm. in a word. I think Lianakis, would that be? Possible. A, a, I think Lianakis. So, so up there was also this sort of notion of can you simultaneously apply requirement? When the court yep. kind of in one of those cases there said no, and then there was a kind of clarification that you can, but you need to kind of, again, differentiate how it's used and for which purpose and so on and so forth. So we have a certain line of cases within within similar consideration. Yeah. So 
just going back because then I think we can, uh, I, f I feel dessert is also coming up. Yes. Very soon. So before we jump to dessert, just to wrap it up in context of this, one more kind of relevant aspect that I think that really comes out of it. So if we want to tie it with the bow, what is also something that we get thought of those both cases going forward is really in a way, as I mentioned earlier on, is, is, is something different communicated right now about those cases that in Regio Post, because with Regio Post, we had contract performance conditions. And when that um, specific requirement that has been established in a tender was not complied to, the Court of Justice in that case was uh, of an of a opinion that exclusion from participation in the contract cannot be regarded as a penalty, of course, here, but it is a merely a consequence of failure characterized by the failure to, en um, to enclose with the tender a written um, requirement that that tender in Regio Post was asking for. So they were kind of wrapping it and saying, well, you can ask about certain things connected with contract performance conditions. And if that is uh, failed to comply with, you can on that base exclude the tender. When I hear both of those cases really clearly state that you cannot check before the contract is awarded the contract performance conditions. However, when I have a slight caveat here, um, is also because they're talking about waste collection and then Sanresa, mm. the 18.2 is being mentioned. Um, yep. So, the, and, and, and there is a slide because, you know, this is quite, the language is used quite strongly. You cannot check da-da-da. You only can do it yep. afterwards. But I think that um, this needs to be considered also in the broader context of what are other provisions in the directive. And more specifically here, relevant is Article 56.2 yep. that specifically reflects to the fact that you can decide not to award a contract if the economic uh, operator is in violation of 18.2. It's your right. So, yep. you know, if you want to apply that provision in context with what 18.2 covers, which talks about, you know, certain requirements of legal capacity, sorry, legal compliance with the laws that apply to performance of the contract. I think the juxtaposition of all those three provisions, 18.2, 56.2, and then this discussion of contract performance here, I feel like if it's a mandatory thing that you need to comply with that is covered by 18.2, you can ask and check it before the contract is awarded. And I wonder what you think, because at least that would be my reading. Yeah, particularly because it seems that 18, Article 18.2, uh, because of its scope, and then the question is like, uh, you know, would you only be able to do it probably for environmental or labor or, um, and I'm missing one now. Social. Social, mm -hmm. yes, thank you. Um, aspects that are mentioned, so like there's a reference in when it comes to national, European, and international some international conventions. Um, but I think there would, I, I think it would be a valid, valid line of thought, is to think that that might be the carve out uh, when it comes to checking prior to uh, to award. Yeah, yeah, undoubtedly. So I think that that's kind of interesting here because it seems yeah. that the court didn't didn't reflect it on that at all no <clears throat> so maybe we can leave this uh leave this with our listeners do you agree yes i think question, that's question if you might have opinions on that uh you may disagree with us or let us know what you think like always exactly and that's and that's always a question right yes. sometimes uh um we can be as annoying as we want but, but <laughs> please disagree right um all right let's move to uh, dessert if for main we looked at um uh, two cases 
from the Court of Justice, uh, the Clyperos case and uh, the Sanresa case from 2000, yeah. uh, from 2021. And now we're moving to dessert. And um, it's a topic that I think is uh, g- gaining far more tension than before or traction, I should say, perhaps also tension. Um, and it's it's privilege in academia because you you noted uh, Marta that you said um, hey let's have a chat about that um, uh, perhaps you could you know guide the listeners along into your line of thought or why you um, think let's put it differently why do you think this should be at least a conversation topic uh, at the coffee machine if people end up going to work and not work remotely yeah well, i think that um this is something that i came across uh in some of the new the, I, I started to branch out a little bit um out of researching really you know the procurement and the substance of the research that we do no you went beyond the wall <laughs> i went behind the wall yeah um beyond beyond did you not watch the show i did Mara? i did oh you did I okay did. good um <laughs> yeah but to the topic um and reading a little bit, you know, like what is the role of academic in a society? What like, you know, a little bit like if you want to call it a midlife crisis, but in a very professional sense, like what I'm doing here, what I should be contributing to, what's sort of going on, right? And one of the things that I also uh, came across is there's various points of access to, to, to academia and also how we're making sure that the conversations that we have when we're giving advices, when we're organizing stuff, that it's, it's a really question, I think, about mentoring, equality, and equity also. Um, and I came across this, this uh, circle that is called the academic will of privilege and how your uh, privilege is being increased depending on various categories. So just to give you a context of these categories, um, there are things like um, childhood and development, living in culture, um, caregiving, um, education and career, gender and sexuality, race, and health and well-being. So you see, they are very broad. But bottom line, what that wheel kind of creates for you and points out is that depending on on those various categories, you kind of are predispositioned to have quite well access to academia, and that can be education primarily, but it also can be academic careers and access to the best education, the best peers, the best uh, of the best, versus you may not. And that impacts in the way your career trajectory. That means that, you know, for example, some people become um, assistant professors, associate professors, and then professors in a fairly um, fairly quick amount of time. Some others, it takes them longer time. And of course, it's all like we, we trade very lightly in the conversation that we're having because it's not to say that there is always sort of like a reason of that type. Some Some people can have all the privilege and still not, manage some others can be really really phenomenally talented people and their trajectory also can be different but but the reason why i wanted us to kind of have a bit of conversation by because i thought that some of those categories were quite interesting and not this very obvious one and a point of that is that if you young scholar and sometimes you feel like oh i'm not at the same level of development that others that i think that maybe reflecting of some of this can can point out to you why your path might be more difficult and also for the people that are in a more senior position, uh, when you organize things, when you organize, if that's 
PhD seminars, conferences, projects, stakeholders groups, all these different things. We often talk of a solo aspect of, you know, quality, quote unquote, and that quality, quote unquote, I think at times also is very, from a very privileged perspective applied. So it's also yeah, a point of access. How are we ensuring access for everyone uh, as much as we also can as creators of different opportunities? Yeah, I think you're, you're touching on, a, some, on something very important. Um, and I do hope that people have these conversations at the coffee machine. You can have them anywhere you want, mm. really. But like, I think it's a very nice visual because you bump into random people, you have a small chat, or maybe that leads to more. But I think also into it, I think this discussion that we're having, I think the purpose generally is this, uh, what would be good is I think is to for people to gain an understanding of it, right? Mm -hmm. Or of that context matters. Yeah. Um, and that I think it also means, like you rightly say, is how does that influence our life, right? How does that go from, um, how do we organize events, like you say? So yeah. I think there's a, there's, it's a very clear also, I think, um, um, in a sense, the purpose of this conversation is also very concrete. Um, yeah. And it's, yeah. And, and I find that, so just to, to take out one of the dis discussions we've been having here at Utrecht University is also about first-generation students. Mm. Yeah, so um, that's also one of these categories in that wheel, right? Yeah. And and it's, uh, I, n I never really experienced it because um, um, my, my father went to um, uh, tertiary education. So for me, the world of academics wasn't very far away. Mm. If I had questions, I could ask him. And I also see it in class when it's also about vocab, right? About mm. vocabulary. Undoubtedly. When you, when you refer to, so I find that first generation students often refer to the university as school. Yeah. And in a way you can dismiss that. Perhaps people laugh about it because like, oh, that's so silly. You're not going to school. You're not a kid anymore. You're going to university. That's mm -hmm. something else. You're here to debate and analyze and not learn in a very, very, uh, perhaps if I say it really um, in a nasty way, it's you're not in a childish environment mm -hmm. anymore. Um, and it, it, I think recognizing that uh, there's no difference in in, in, in in intelligence. It's just you haven't been exposed to it, right? You don't know what it means to study at a university because your parents aren't able to guide you or your context is just different. But I think it's also, you know, this notion of, of um, where you started because the whole thing... Um, it it even goes as back as as far back, you know, or to what are the conversations around the table when the kids are small and go to school and so on. Usually, there are studies that point out, you know, the families that have um, university degrees. They would talk about and they have much more knowledge about helping out their children, how they are to study and why they study and kind of are able to take a lot of the unknown for the future because they kind of been through similar paths. So they can, yeah. you know, there's more like a uh, support system versus if you're first generation um, university um, student or then academic Everything from very scratch is new. And unless you're quite lucky to, you know, establish this mentorship with particular, yep. let's say, professors somewhere at the university or someone else who can kind of guide you through that process, it's all very new process. And everything is a bit extra hard in that regards. And and you can also see that very often those are the most hardworking also academics that you have because they sort of really scrapped everything from the very beginning on their own. But there are yep. this sort of various categories. So one of them is 
as you mentioned, um, is this sort of what is your background and is that background coming from academia? So the privilege is acknowledged here that um, at every university you for sure see that because this is quite common, right? The, there is some parent or uncle or grandparent that kind of is maybe professor and someone else that starts their PhD. And I would want to very clearly point out that we're not saying or we're not trying suggesting that this is wrong or corruptive or any of that type because each of all. each of those persons can be perfectly qualified and 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 you know sort of skilled in their way but that this is a privilege that we the same way that you know we talking the two of us as as white european academics we already have a huge amount of privilege that we need to acknowledge and the aspect of that is how you extend yourself to to be empathic to to kind of also do the service back. So why someone help us, how are we helping the others? And sometimes yep. that can mean, you know, um, someone wants to apply for a PhD. And I see that very clearly. I'm, I'm sure that you saw that, Willem, in your career too. People who never wrote an application for PhD and did not have anyone kind of helping them to figure out how you write something like that, will submit something that is that is often quite poor. And the poor element is not necessary of the substance, but in the form. But that's because, you know, someone did not have any idea how to do that. So, exactly. So your extension here can be, okay, we before, you know, we will be having the deadline. We will have some sort of Zoom, open Zoom for everyone that we go through main points of how good application looks like, right? So, it's a, yeah. so this is sort of what I mean of the point of access and acknowledging the privilege. You kind of uh, so it's it 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 doesn't explain everything and doesn't justify everything, no. but it is a factor to take into account, uh, definitely. And I think also concretely, uh, you're trying to level the playing field a little bit because otherwise, and also talking about benefits, you might miss out on fantastic PhDs, Absolutely. fantastic students for that could be future leaders of countries, etc. Simply because they they had a different start to others, and I think um, also. Um, to, to make it even more concrete um, because some people are also like skeptical, right? Mm -hmm. they, it, this is, a, I, I, I accidentally said uh, tension in the beginning, but there is also tension, right? Because yeah. what does it mean for us? And I think on a very accessible level, so when we, so we're organizing the um, interdisciplinary public procurement forum again, we end up with discussions about, is it going to be hybrid or not? Mm -hmm. And inevitably, if you don't do it hybrid, people from countries far away that don't have the funds to travel and will never otherwise be able to give be given the opportunity won't be able to join right so we do it in a hybrid way you already mentioned also the 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 quality will we be strict on quality and i think what i'm very happy about is that we're not going to be strict on quality if you're doing a phd mm. that's related to procurement or and beyond yeah, maybe it could be on scarce rights or whatever but if it's related to that and you submit something that you've worked hard on, we'll try to help you. Yeah, I think and of that course this that is, means this... that some is some are really, uh, you know, are at a very preliminary stage. Others are really advanced. And yeah, I think um, that you're also what you're really acknowledging. What I really would want to take a chance to command you and the team at Utrecht is that you really take it as a, you know, it's a PhD, any type of PhD seminar. It's training. It doesn't really matter. No. Where are you right now? What will matter is when you finish and A, whether you finish that PhD and you submit it and then what the quality of that it will be then. It doesn't matter whether someone is a superstar right now exactly. because they may not ever finish, for example, right? 
and also the superstars might not need it as much. Exactly. Right? Uh, and, mm. and I find that, so it's not so much about getting everyone to a nine out of 10. It's about giving everyone 5% of help or two or 10. Sometimes the adv advice is obviously more helpful than in other situations. But I think that's also a clear example of like the, the discussions that we're having about these differences that exist, the different categories that you mentioned lead to concrete choices about how we operate as academics in uh, in in academia. And just looking at the at the time, I'll give you the last shout out about this topic, and then we'll round off. Yeah, I think that what we hope that we communicated the main point of this is that, of course, um, the feedback to this could be, you know. Um, quite critical to what we discuss here also that, you know, then you can kind of expand that privilege on kind of everything and nothing. And, you know, what about really quality? Like you can have a lot of different conversation. What we tried to approach with this, or at least, you know, my idea when I was trying to pitch it to, to, to Willem was really, let's talk about how we can create more access and how we can more build than divide and how we can be more empathic um, rather than, you know, critical over everyone else, uh, sort of everyone, that's not the best way, yeah. but, you know, sort of like let, how to try people, bring people together. And for that, we need to acknowledge also that each one of us has certain blind spots and we all learn all our life. And this is one of the conversation that I, I hope that um, in all your own reflections and conversations with colleagues, friends, uh, that can just push that little bit millimeter, millimeter further for us to make a good global, you know, environment, sorry, global academic environment, a little bit nicer and a little bit more uh, welcoming. Fantastic. I have nothing more to add to that. This was Bistec, the Public Procurement Podcast. This was Bistec, the Public Procurement Podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestechpodcast.com.